Welcome to Fringe Element here on the 440 Sports Network. My name is Braden Gall, and you can get to me on Twitter at Braden Gall. Mine's Aaron Dugan. You can find me on, God, I can't talk already. Find me on Twitter at the Aaron Dugan or Instagram, Aaron underscore Dugan. Strong start. Does is, uh, is your company there have a culture problem? Is that the problem? Like you guys just out late partying and driving fast and racing and reckless driving and intoxication and damage to property? And is that, that would be on? more that would be more interesting. We are up late, but it's unfortunately not partying. <laughs> it's mostly just the work. Uh, yeah, just that the work ha- that happens. Uh, so the NFL combine came and went. Anthony Richardson uh, flew by everybody as fast as possible, set every single record, the most athletic quarterback in the history of the combine. and. We it's told crazy. you, and we told you so. Uh, so we're gonna we're gonna touch on the combine for for just a minute. Uh, the the big chunk of the show today will be dedicated to a fun activity, a fun exercise, a lighthearted off season exercise. Because the first part of the show is gonna be a little heavier. Uh, but the mid the, the main portion will be the most important game for every single team in 2023. You've got a list. I've got a list. We will debate. Uh, we will get to all 14 teams in the SEC. Adam Sparks gonna join us from from the Knoxville News Sentinel, giving us a Tennessee Volunteer State of the Union as we continue our State of the Union spring, State of the Union through the entire conference. Uh, so I want to make sure we do that. And, uh, of course, special thanks to Chris and Jonathan, who both won hats last week from our good friends, University Traditions. They knew? Uh, won it. Yep, they absolutely knew. And, and they and they both framed it in a form of a question. So major credit to those of you who listened to the end of the show last week and framed what what is Vanderbilt dance team? <laughs> the, they both said the exact same thing. Both said the exact same thing. So I said, you know what? You both get a hat from our good friends at University Traditions. Look, I still got some Go more left. them. Look, I got a, I got an Arkansas That's one awesome. left. Those are I, sick. This one, this the old Miss one. I'm sorry, Arkansas fans. I love you, but this old Miss one, awesome, awesome hat. Yeah. Um, here's a, let me ask you a question before we get into the heavy subject. Okay. I was given a hat by a uh, by my brother in law. Okay. And, and and his wife. For Christmas this year. He is a Nashvilleian. They lives in Florida, married into a Florida family. Okay. And I think you've seen this hat before. I but have. I, ha- I have worn this hat many times. And we're about to talk about Georgia. So I'm not going to wear this hat now. Because it will clearly come off a certain way. Is this... What kind of hat is this? And if you're looking on YouTube, you can, you can see it. What does it what, say again? What kind of hat is this? It says, easy living on it. There's a picture of a gator. Eating what could be a citrusy-ish fruit, so maybe even an orange fruit, potentially. So I'm not supposed to guess it. (laughs) Well, is it the question is? Are you asking me, or is this the trivia question? No, 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 no. This is just I'm just talking to you about this. So I've been. So do you want me to talk back to you about it? Yeah, like it's it's, a Florida hat. It's a Floridian hat. It is not three things about it that are Florida. It's well, it's from a Florida family. But he is a Tennessee guy, and he knows I'm a Tennessee alumni, and it's mostly just a hat that's from Florida. It just happens to also look like a Florida Gator hat. So I can't really wear it around town. You know what I mean? But Easy it's a great... living. Is that a shot at their scheduling? I, <laughs> I like that. <laughs> Maybe. Just a... You just made up for all the stumbling you did right out of the gate. You're like, Oh, was, no. I'm like, I'm fantastic. sleep deprived. I'm going to be weird today. I'm just going to warn everyone. I, I get so many compliments from like young, cool people. Which I am n- neither of. Mm-mm, neither. I went into like a really fancy shoe store to get some like really nice boots and like the okay, the gir- like what the, kind like, of boots? Yeah, like the girl behind the no free shouts. The the yeah. 
it's like all fancy, fancy leathers. And the girl behind the thing was like, man, that's a sweet hat. And I was like, yeah, my brother-in-law gave it to me because he's young and he's like 30. But it's clearly like a, it looks too much like a Florida Gators hat. You know what I mean? I mean? He knew that, right? I, I guess so. I don't think he, I don't think it occurred to his wife, who does, who's a Miami Hurricanes fan. Or maybe it did occur to his. <laughs> well, no, that would make a lot of sense. He's a Tennessee guy. He's a Tennessee guy. Huh? I don't. Yeah. It's just a dope know. hat. It's just a dope hat, man. All the young kids are talking about it. They, but, she knew you were like hipstery and heady like that. Yeah, granola. I, I wish. You're not um, granola, but you are like East Nasty vibes. True. But I cannot wear this hat with what we're about to discuss. Because if I clip it and put it on social wearing this hat, everyone's going to assume I am a giant Gators fan. Because yeah. Georgia, your time has come, folks. The Georgia Bulldogs, come on down. Do you have a culture problem? Now, I hate this phrase, culture problem. I'm not a big fan of that cliche. Aaron. What is it about it? It's, it's just too coach speaky or what? It's, it's not even coach it's, speak. It's, not, it's just. It's cliche. not specific enough. It's not. It doesn't define the situation. Like, I there's not tight ends murdering people at Georgia. You know, True. like. That, yeah, like it's it's not like Kirby Smart is intentionally going about trying to, like, make people bad. Like, uh, <laughs> you know what I mean? No, 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 I, no. I think they are on their way to having a major problem. <laughs> yeah, that that's where I want to start. So let's, because I'm going to take it to a place that I don't think many SEC shows are going to take it. But let's let's give you some quick thoughts here. Nine players have been arrested since January of 2022. So a little over a year, we've got nine arrests. Almost Georgia for Georgia, just Georgia. Almost all of them have resulted in little to no discipline from the legal system. Um, A couple of them are extremely serious. We know, obviously, about Jalen Carter and the two young people who passed away tragically in a car accident, which is tragic. Stetson Bennett, public intox. No big deal. Okay, doesn't need to be that big of a deal. Yeah. Um, But you also had Dumas Johnson, the linebacker, five days earlier arrested for racing and reckless driving. Um, Trayvon Walker, the number one pick last year, drove into two cars late at night in April of 2022. Very late at night. No citation. Nothing. Uh, Kenny McIntosh, April 25th, 4 a.m. He got into a crash going 20 over. A woman was in the hospital. Reckless driving charge. Nolan Smith, who just dominated the combine, was going 89 and a 55. And he got a, quote, pretrial diversion program. That's it. Uh, and I got some more on Nolan Smith in just a second. Uh, Javon Bullard got a DUI with seven misdemeanors. There's an actual charge. Uh, the long, even the long snapper was destroying property when intoxicated. Um, that's, and that's normally the l- most low key player on the team, <laughs> besides maybe right. like a third string kicker. Uh, two misdemeanors, simple battery for Warren Brinson. Ra Ra Thomas, a transfer who didn't even play in the national championship games, got a felony for false imprisonment. Um, but I want to take so that's just like in the last What's false imprisonment again. It was like holding a woman against her her will, basically. Uh, but that's again, you good. go read about the story. Um, by and large, the not not just Kirby in Georgia, but the legal system. One of these was the Jalen Carter when Jalen Carter first got pulled over. He was due in September. He was doing eighty nine and a forty five, and the police officer said, "You need to chill out, or you're gonna go eventually go to jail." Nothing happened. Got nothing. No, no, not a ticket, not a citation, nothing. So I say all this not to be like, oh, it's all Kirby's fault. It's not. It's not. That's not what I'm saying here. I want to go back to Isaiah Wilson. Now, I don't know if you remember Isaiah Wilson, Marin. I don't really. Isaiah Wilson was a first round draft pick in 2020 
Okay. From the, from the Georgia Bulldogs. He skipped his senior season. He was drafted in the first round by the Tennessee Titans here in Nashville. Before even he played four total combined snaps in the NFL. First round pick. $11 million contract, $6 million guaranteed. In August, up before the season started, he was arrested for jumping off a balcony at Tennessee State University. He was then arrested for driving under the influence, and he was doing donuts on Charlotte Avenue, which is a major thoroughfare leaving downtown Nashville. Yes. With with a, a, a BAC well above the legal limit. Mm-hmm. He then gets on, he's put on COVID list twice. He plays three snaps in one game. He is then arrested for driving 140 miles an hour in Georgia and felony fleeing from police, possession of Schedule 1 controlled substances, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. He is no longer in the NFL. First round draft pick, lottery ticket from God to be to change his family's life forever financially. Mm-hmm. My The reason I bring Isaiah Wilson up is not only did I cover him firsthand here in Nashville when I was covering the Titans, but that this is not just the last 13 months since they've won two national titles. This goes back further. Mm-hmm. And I want to, and it's the car thing. I don't understand why the car thing keeps coming up. Clearly, these players are allowed to do whatever they want driving around Athens. Now, I don't think this is a Kirby Smart creating a bad culture issue. I, I think this is, and I know I'm on a, a soapbox here. So I want you to chime in whenever you feel comfortable. <laughs> no, I'm just kind of letting you rant, and then I got, I got I, to say. I think what happens is a couple of different things all happen at the same time. To win national championships in college football, you got to recruit players that maybe aren't the exact perfect picture of what you want. Because sometimes you're willing to take the best possible athletes and maybe not always the best possible people. That's yes. just one that's one tiny force at play here. The microscope and the spotlight gets way brighter and way stronger and and picks up on every single blemish and wart in your program. And, and you have to be treated differently when you're the two-time national champion than when you are, you know, two and ten or whatever, right? Yeah. So that's, that's another outside force that's taking place here. I don't think there's a culture problem at Georgia, but it is not a collection of individual incidents the way Stetson Bennett framed it at the Combine. This is, this is a program on a, on a path. It is on a trajectory to ending up in a place where all of this comes home to roost at some point. And right now is the moment that Kirby Smart, the athletic department, the football program, the football team, the coaches, the AD, whatever, they can put an end to all of this stuff if they make some big statements here inside the program. Not outside the program, but inside the program. They don't have a bad culture. But if Kirby doesn't do something to stop this behavior where they clearly are told they can do whatever the hell they want with no repercussions, then we are going to be headed into a place where they do have a major culture problem. Does does that all make sense? It uh, it all does make sense, and I agree with you on most of those on most of the stuff that you just said. I'm not, but I would maybe go a little further and say I don't think Kirby Smart created a bad culture, but. I use, and I hate to talk about this all the time, but I spent so much time with Vanderbilt baseball that all I can think about when stuff like this happens is like, what would Tim Corbin do, the head coach at Vanderbilt? And this would have been, A, this never 
would have happened. And he recruits at the highest level. I will say because of the size of a football roster, there's a lot more kids on it. Sometimes baseball is a more expensive sport. Sometimes like kids that had, you know, higher income families and therefore maybe had some more support at home were more likely to play baseball. We've seen that baseball is really needs to step their game up in terms of including minorities and figuring out a way to get, you know, different cultural group socioeconomic groups into the sport, but it is an expensive one. So that kind of creates a little bit of a separation between who you recruit in football and sometimes who you recruit in baseball. But if this had happened like underneath, this would not have happened underneath Tim Corbin. And if it did, you, no questions asked. If you put somebody else's life in jeopardy, if you're acting entitled, if you're doing stupid stuff or doing dangerous stuff, you're gone. And then everybody sees that you're gone and the next person maybe isn't doing that or doesn't feel as invincible. I mean, I don't think Kirby Smart is a bad guy or created a bad culture, but I do think that they are not nixing what is creating a bad culture, uh, which is, you know, I know at some, t at some certain point you, you know, you do have to recruit at the highest level if you want to be the best, but there is, there's a really slippery slope there of that, that sweet spot to where you're getting the best talent in, but you're not sacrificing values and you're not bringing people in because it's contagious. We saw what's happened with LSU and behavioral issues in the past. Like if you got guys at the top acting up, going out during COVID, drinking, partying. Well, guess what? Everybody thinks it's okay. And all of a sudden you've got the, I mean, and it, where did it? LSU's chaos trickle down from if, if the, the coaching staff. Yes, if the two head coaches are willing to cover it up, that's where I think there's that. That's more of a defined culture creation problem at LSU. Totally. Under but this Les is Miles starting like at a, the next level down. It's not right. starting at the top, but it is happening in the program, and it's not being nixed by the top. Right. And it's going to be replicated by other guys in the program, and they see what you can get away with. Georgia, Athens, law enforcement. Because everyone in the everyone there is hardcore, like Georgia fans. They're letting these kids probably get away with a little bit more. But you have to set the tone for what's okay and what's not. And when there's danger and people's lives in jeopardy and dangerous activity, I would venture to say this is going to continue to go down this path if you don't send a very strong message as the coaching staff at Georgia. Yeah, I, I agree. I think there's a difference between like. Art Bryles, <laughs> you know, and what's going on at Georgia. I just think that we're, we're talking about two very yeah, different levels of sure. stuff. We're talking, but, but again, what happens when you win at this level, there's kind of two big things that happen when you win at this level. Number one, you, you might have cut corners to your, to your point about character to get talent. That's yeah. just, that's part of the process I see. And that's not a Georgia thing. That's an everywhere in college athletics thing. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's actually not even college athletics. That's the whole world <laughs> that, right. that applies to every business. Like if you're a great, you know, if you're a great mortgage bond trader, but you're an asshole, you probably are going to get a mortgage bond job and you're probably going to go out there and make a bunch of money for your company. Like that's not a new thing. Mm -hmm. um, but what happens is, is two things happen in college athletics specifically, and it's packaged with very young men, very young, impressionable people that are already not fully formed frontal lobes, <laughs> you know, like that are making mistakes because that's what happens. All of us did. I did it. We all make mistakes in college. Right. And what I think is what I think is interesting is that the two big things that happen is one, you are empowered with your success in your community. The more you win, the more power you have inside your little bubble mm -hmm. and the bubble gets tighter and like the bubble gets less transparent as you win more. Mm -hmm. So the more you win, the less people 
hold you accountable or know what's really going on. Yeah, you become a celebrity and entitlement. Have you watched the Murdoch documentaries? (laughs) I have not, but (laughs) I I have heard. I I just got done with them. Like that, that 17 year old kid literally was never told no his entire life. But that's neither here nor there. Far more (laughs) dramatic, far, far, far more dramatic circumstances. But then again, you and then the other thing that happens is the spotlight and the focus and the attention and all the love, all that leads to more and more stuff being focused on your program, as I said. And so, you know, one guy gets arrested for public intox, not a big deal at like Kentucky or Tennessee or Missouri right now, because they're not the two-time defending champions. They're not held to the same standard as the way we now view Kirby Smart and Georgia as the gold standard of college football. And that's, yeah. you could you could say that's unfair if you want to, but that's just the reality. So you've got these little feudal dictator egomaniacs that run these totally you know opaque, lack of transparency, little bubble communities where every time you win a game, those athletes get more and more empowered. The coaches get more and more empowered. The athletic directors get more and more empowered. The boosters feel better and better. And it's not a Georgia problem. This happens everywhere. It happens everywhere, and it's happening now to Georgia. And let me end this on on one one story I heard from the combine this week because Nolan Smith went up there and had a great weekend. Four three nine forty, elite looking pass rusher coming off the pectoral injury. Everybody loves Nolan Smith. Of course, he was on the list that I just read off, doing eighty nine and a fifty five, no repercussions. I was told this is not a this is not a huge deal. This is not a criminal offense. This is not anything, but it is a sign, and it is absolutely something that NFL scouts talk about. And I know I've heard a lot of these stories about a lot of players. Nolan Smith is kind of an asshole to people the entire weekend in Indianapolis. And you know this because you've shot video as a production crew person, right? Like you've been on the production crew. These guys go in and out of dressing rooms and in and out of in and out of production studios with NFL Network, with ESPN, with, you know, in and out of meetings with general managers. Teams, yeah, there are young women everywhere just doing their jobs. And if you're going to how you treat those people is noticed by talent evaluators and by scouts and by GMs. And I did not hear positive things about how Nolan Smith, for example, behaved this weekend in Indianapolis. Yeah, it is very telling. I will say some general managers will probably care more than others, but it is, you know, whatever. What team was it that? Uh, their coach went viral for pulling all the female staff members to the front of the classroom. Oh, I don't remember uh, that. Oh my god, it, who was it? I'm just totally blanking. Um, and and I don't say that about Nolan Smith to be like, oh, don't draft him. Like, no, he's a fine player. He deserves a shot at his career, and he's going to have a great. He probably is going to be a really good NFL player. It, it's here, just it's a tiny nugget. It's a tiny <laughs> anecdote that indicates that these guys at Georgia right now. Pretty much feel like they can do whatever they want. And 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 that is now on Kirby to manage that. It's not that it's his fault or that there's a bad culture. It's that this is what happens when you are two-time defending champion. And yeah. this is this is how it works. This is this is what you have to deal with when you're at this level. And it's now on the coaching staff and the leaders in the locker room and the people in the front office, or I guess the administration, to try to put an end to all of this. This is the hardest. The, the race part. car, the racing is this. The number of people doing 150 miles an hour is absurd. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. This is the hardest part to me. This is where you define a program that is like a legacy program versus a program that is playing at an elite level for a, sh- a 
a certain amount of time. And this is the defining moment, I think, for Georgia because mm-hmm. you know you can win. You've got the talent in place to do that. You've got the coaching staff around you that's capable. This is taking your program from winning a lot to being a legacy program and that comes in discipline that doesn't that's where you go from talent back in a reverb towards discipline and sending the right message and being willing to part with people who are toxic to your culture even if they can are the one of the fastest guys on the team or are super talented you have to recognize but it takes a lot of talent and a lot of it takes a, a lot of resources and talent in place to be able to part with those people but this is that this is that moment for Georgia is can you now make it last and making it last comes in the form of discipline, respect, humility, and making sure that you don't sacrifice those things for anything and then hope that you continue to get the right guys through the door. It's hard to do. And and we'll move on because I, you know, we're not sitting here trying to lecture, but like, this is the reality. I think you're exactly right to spin this forward. I, I don't think there's a, some sort of massive culture problem that Kirby smart has created. This happens on its own. And when it and when it happens, the sign of Urban Meyer versus Nick Saban is Urban Meyer's Urban Meyer can't keep it together. It burns out. You you, yeah. you know Icarus, right? You fly too close to the sun, you burn out and you you die. Yeah. Like it, Florida burnt out because Urban Meyer couldn't do it. Yeah. Like he, like and and all the warts came out and it was way worse than what Georgia's dealing with right now, right? Like way worse. And you're riding that talent. You're riding and dying on the talent wave, and then you know, and then things will fluctuate and then you have behavioral issues and then lack of discipline. Yeah. You're just riding this wave with the kids instead of getting there and then being like, we won't sacrifice the way that we do things for anybody. Your staff buys in more, the guys, and then you have guys gravitating towards you because you're like, that is the pro, and their parents want them there. Like, that's the program that's right. But right. It, it's it's a hard balance to strike. I'm not going to can you sugarcoat com- it. Can you keep people grounded? Can you keep them focused? Can you keep them disciplined? Can you keep them hungry? Can you keep them working towards the goal? Like this is what makes Nick Saban better than everybody else. Mm-hmm. Better than Les Miles and Coach O and better than Urban Meyer and better than even Pete Carroll had some discipline problems at USC. Like it it all it happens to every one of these programs. Mm-hmm. The question is, can you can you kind of like stop it, control it, manage it, and then evolve beyond it? And that's what right now. Kirby Smart's gonna got it. He's got to do that the next couple of years, and and, and we, we don't know until three more years from now until he, if he can handle it or not. You know, and I'm not saying that Saban is like fully. You know, I don't know if it's fair to say that he every time there's been a behavioral issue that Saban has jumped on it. But he, I do he's, think he's, he's had plenty of his own issues. There's no question. right, but you do have the liberty when you get to a certain level in your Alabama or Alabama as we know them traditionally to be like, oh, you're gonna act like that. Get the hell out. Say Saban and doesn't then, care. And yeah, he'll just he'll get rid of you. You don't want to be there. We don't. Well, guess what? We don't need you. You're like yeah. you're just a piece of the puzzle for us. And there's five other guys that are waiting to take over as soon as you mess up. So get out of the way. And and then you'll send a message that there's just not room for that stuff. Like you think? <laughs> I think the other coach at Alabama is missing some of that accountability. <laughs> That's yeah. Well, different different subject altogether. As I'm watching my guy, uh, John Morant, act stupid in the NBA and get held accountable by both his coach himself, his PR team and the NBA uh, didn't do anything really that wrong. I mean, he had, he made a mistake with the young person, but not with the Instagram live or whatever. And you know, he's suspended indefinitely basically. 
and uh, anyway, I don't want to go on, off on a tangent there. Yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, quickly, Anthony Richardson in the combine. Anthony Richardson, uh, Adam Sparks going to join us coming up. Tennessee State of the Union. Uh, Anthony Richardson is the, the most statistically, factually, the most athletic quarterback in the history of the combine. I don't know if I have anything else to add to that. Um, I think he's going to be a really good player in the NFL. I think somebody needs to be patient with him. But I think we told you last week this guy's going to blow people away. And sure enough, literally, factually, statistically, the most athletic quarterback in the history of the NFL Combine. A 4-4-3 at 244 pounds and a 40.5-inch vertical. That's high and fast. (laughs) Yeah. You're going to clip that. You're out. Watch. Braden's going to clip that piece for social. (laughs) That's high and fast. The the longest broad jump in the history of quarterbacks. Uh, The, I think the, the, the vertical biggest vertical in the history of quarterbacks. Yep. And again, as you as you mentioned, faster than Cam Newton, Tim Tebow, and just as big. So, um, Anthony Richardson, folks. I don't think he's going to be top five. I talked to a scout. I don't think he's going top five. I think he's going to be like six or seven. But I don't think he makes it past like eight or nine. I, I think the Panthers or the Seahawks or somebody goes up and gets him. So, how do you think he also crushed fares in the league? Way. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. Crushed interviews. What do you, if you had to guess his trajectory, make up a hypothetical for if, Anthony Richardson's career. There's there's two of them. If he's thrown into starting right away, there's a chance he never fully develops and maybe maybe that, that slows his growth and he doesn't realize his potential. Uh, I think it, it's, if somebody is willing to let him sit behind a starting quarterback, like, I don't know, Ryan Tannehill from Tennessee Titans. Mm-hmm. If you're gonna if you're gonna let him sit behind because he's not he's not raw he's inexperienced and but man the most athletic quarterback in the history of the game very according impressive to the, according to the combine um you that, do something that, like that and you interview the way he does because the interviews do yep matter uh it's yeah yep. you're and, sitting oh, pretty and Bryce Young small. I think we told all you. I think we told you guys all these narratives last last week about all these guys. Uh, Hen and Hooker's uh, a, a joy to be around. <laughs> um, uh, okay, all right. Let's get into let's 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 switch moods here and 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 be lighthearted for a little while. You want to do that? Yeah, let's do that. All right. So completely lighthearted here. All right. Okay. Complete completely object completely subjective. Uh, beauty is in the eye of the beholder here. Okay. Okay. I want you, we're going to go back and forth. We're going to go alphabetical in the West, then alphabetical in the East. And we're going to go most important game of 2023 to have some fun, lighten the mood here before we get to Adam Sparks and our Tennessee State of the Union. What do you think? Sound fun? That works. Yep, let's do it. All right. Uh, Which means Alabama. Number one, uh, alphabetically, of course. Uh, Alabama, Aaron Dugan, what is the most important game for Bama in 2023? I think LSU on the 28th of October. What do you think? Are you going to give me any explanation? You gotta well, say something more than just. I just the think game. that LS. Well, LSU is on the rise, and Alabama is trying to quote unquote reverb from what is not at the typical Alabama team that we're used to seeing, because the standard and the bar is set so high that if they even have a still above average, still way above average season, they're everyone, including themselves, think they suck. Yep. So LSU has actually shown insane progress quickly under Brian Kelly and um, they will be for the first time in a couple years, the team to beat. And I think um, 
I just think that's going to be an interesting one. And I think the reason I think it's the most important, at least in my mind, is because it tells me a lot about both of them. I think it's a really good gauge to measure where LSU is. And I think the same thing about Alabama. So maybe that's most important game to me as opposed to the most important game for Alabama. But that's what I... It's, it feels like it's the only game. I have LSU November 4th, week 10 as well. Both teams coming off a bye. Oh, I had the date wrong, huh? It, well, uh, I've got it as November 4th. I don't know what day you said. Okay, I so. put October 28th. I don't know where I got that. Uh, that's the bye week. Uh, they're off the week before. But got it. this is the only game, I think, of all 14 teams that you could argue is potentially a de facto division championship game. I don't know if Tennessee-Georgia is going to be in that same boat. You know, Texas, they'll play at Alabama will play at Mississippi State early in the year in September at A&M on October 7th. That's a tough stretch there where they're going to go Mississippi State on the road, A&M on the road, then then Arkansas and Tennessee at home back to back, but that's they can do that. Then it's LSU at home. And that could be the game that decides the West. And the only other one I wrote down was at Auburn because if you even if you go 11, like 10 and 1 up into that point in the Iron Bowl in week 13, even if you just slip up one time Auburn could get you at the end and knock you out of of a playoff spot. So I, I just I think it's LSU with a bullet. So I, I I'm gonna see how many we have that we match. So far we're we're, we're one for one. Okay. Um, the Arkansas Razorbacks, and this is where it gets interesting because there's so many important games. Who you got? Well, I did this. It, I mean, since we're doing them back to back, it's gonna think I'm going seem like I'm going LSU on everything. But I I did pick LSU on this game mainly because for Arkansas, mainly because of where they were in the schedule. Because I think that if our, I mean, obviously BYU is is not the easiest game in the world. They start out with Western Carolina, Kent State, then BYU, then LSU. So it being the first conference game and the momentum that they could create by potentially going 4-0 if they could knock off BYU, to mm-hmm. me, made it the most interesting because I think it just sets the tone because then you got some momentum to see if you can take out A&M, to see if you can do like make a move against Ole Miss. And then obviously you've got at Alabama, Ole Miss, Texas A&M, sorry, Texas A&M, Ole Miss, Alabama, Mississippi State stretch is going to be really difficult. So if you can go into that 4-0, and I think that's going to be just completely mentally make the difference for that program. Like My brain was sort of in the same place as you, but I went with the Texas A&M game the following week, mm-hmm. um, which is week 5, September 30th, which again is at AT&T Stadium. It's almost always a neutral site game. It's always, almost always batshit crazy football game with some bizarro weird ending. Um, but I, I agree with you. That because it to me, I'll give him the loss at LSU, let's say hypothetically. Mm-hmm. But that makes if you lose to LSU, even though you start three and zero, you lose to LSU and you're Arkansas. You are to your point. You're then staring at A and M, Ole Miss, Bama, Mississippi State, Florida, Auburn, in with one bye week mixed in there. That's a that's a ridiculous stretch. And if you lose at LSU, it's not the end of the world. But if you go zero and two in the SEC and you lose to A and M the next week, then you're staring at road trips to Ole Miss and Bama. And then you're looking at 0-4. So I put A&M down as the number one game because I thought you, that's the one spot where you could kind of stop the the bad momentum from an LSU game and give yourself some positive juju going into the Ole Miss game that, frankly, Arkansas and Ole Miss have been crazy. Um, you know, that game's been fun and wild and, and ridiculous. So right. that's, that's where I went. I like where, you're talk- I like where your head's at there. Uh, this is an interesting one and a tough one for me. Auburn Tigers, where'd you go? No, you go first on this one. Um, I wrote down at Arkansas, the which is the second to last SEC game, November 11th. That would be week 11. 
at Arkansas. Now, I think you could argue there's a lot of swing games here for Auburn. Mississippi State at home, Ole Miss at home. You know you got the big games right. Their their schedule, by the way, is insane. <laughs> at Texas A&M, Georgia, at LSU, and then you got Bama. But I went with the at Arkansas game because it's it's near the end and it could be for bowl eligibility for Auburn. Okay, yeah. And if they win on the road at Vanderbilt the week, like you get both Mississippi schools at home, then you go at Vandy. You could win a bunch of those games. You could win two of those, maybe three of those games. And if you can beat Arkansas on the road, which we've seen the Auburn-Arkansas game also has been insane with fumbles and bad calls and stuff lately. If you can win at Arkansas on the road, that probably gives you your sixth win. You beat New Mexico State the following week. You might get to seven wins, and I think you're talking about a really successful season under Hugh Freeze. And even if you lose the Iron Bowl, you feel good about where you're at under Hugh Freeze. Yeah, that all makes sense to me. Yeah, especially the bowl eligibility factor and all of that. Mine was also based on, I found myself, those games that are seemingly like winnable or kind of sort of even, yep. like those are the games that I leaned towards, but also factoring in where they fell in the schedule because I've just seen how much that, that players and coaching staff even ride that mental wave of, oh, we went, now we're four and oh, we can do another one, or we just got our ass kicked three weeks in a row and we can't get back out of it. And now we don't think we're good. So, for that reason, I picked Auburn, I picked Ole Miss, which is on October 21st. They go through this stint of having, like you kind of mentioned, AM um, on the 22nd of September. Then you've got Georgia and then you have LSU. So, if if you let's say that all three of those games end up really tough for them. If you can't get out of it at Ole Miss and reset, your season's going to go to shit. Yep. Uh, so I agree. And then you, and then maybe if you have the confidence, you can do Mississippi State, and then you got to try to build momentum on Vandy and keep going. Yep. Um. So I think it's that Ole Miss reset, like after that, those three tough weeks, that makes that one important. I, I had Ole Miss written down as a top three game for sure. My number two was at A and M because of what you just said. That number four, week number four. Because here, think about imagine the imagine the planes. You beat you beat UMass. You go to Cal and you win that game. You beat Sanford. You're probably three and zero. Yeah. If you figure out a way to go to A and M and win that game and start four and zero, people are going to be going batshit crazy in Auburn. Now, yeah, they're going to come right back down to earth against Georgia and LSU. But I. You get a home game against probably number one Georgia at four and zero. Good night. That place will be bonkers. So totally. I, had, I, I Arkansas was my number one game because that's about bowl eligibility at the end. But I had I had A and M and and Ole Miss the two um, right next to each other. Uh, LSU. I I have a feeling we're going to agree on this one. Um, I bet we are. At Bama, I'll, I'll go first for two, and then you go first for two. Yeah, it's got to be Bama. I've got I mean, Bama. Yep. Yeah. I mean, I don't, there's not a ton to say about, I mean, no, we already kind of talked about this a little bit anyway, because it's Alabama. It, we said, it's what we said for Alabama too. You, you beat Alabama on the, if you're good enough to go into Tuscaloosa and beat Alabama on the road on Saturday, November, uh, on Saturday, November 4th, you are probably good enough to win the SEC or at least be in the SEC title game and maybe even make the playoff. Mm -hmm. he, here's good. another one I'm going to throw out to you though, for, for LSU fans. Week one against Florida state. It's a non-conference game. It's a neutral site game. It doesn't feel like it should be that important, right? But that's a preseason potential top 10 Florida State team that beat you last year on the last play of the game. 
If you go down into Orlando and you hammer Florida State or you beat them and you get a big W, it sets you up for the entire rest of the season. Yeah. Because, again, you look at that schedule, Grambling State, they'll be favored. Even though they're at Mississippi State, they'll be favored. Arkansas at home, they'll be favored. At Ole Miss, they'll be favored. At Missouri, winnable game, favored. Auburn at home, favored. Army, you beat Florida State, you are probably 8-0 going to Alabama. Yeah. I mean, oh boy, I don't have any argument for that. I'm no already further excited. Questions. I'm already excited about college football. Uh, all right, Mississippi State. I, I wrote down the Egg Bowl here because I think there's a good chance that the winner get, has a winning record, and the yeah. loser and the loser might be six and six. I think they're both very good teams. I think they're both bowl eligible teams. Um, I, I just, I don't know. I just think Mississippi State like. Their schedule is kind of weird. They get Bama and LSU at home, but they're both early in the season. I don't right. know if they can win either one of those games. Um, you you got to go to Arkansas and Auburn later. I wrote down the Egg Bowl, but also it's kind of the Egg Bowl. So what you got? It yeah, it's yeah. That's I mean, that's not hard to argue that one. Uh, this is hard. This was hard for me because there are that kind of like middle tier of the SEC. I have some question marks around um, exactly what it's going to be like so there's some games where you're like oh you know what do i think about arkansas and and what's auburn going to be like and is kentucky going to be what right. they've been the last several years and can you win them so a lot of this again a lot of this had to do with order for me um so they've got uh southeastern louisiana first week of the year then arizona then they've got that lsu south carolina alabama situation i pick south carolina i, I think mississippi state will win that but that's it's because it's wedged into those two, in between those two really important games. That's the difference between potentially going, uh, you know, oh, if you oh don't win that one, yeah, yeah, you could go own three in the SEC, and that's that's really not going to be good for mental health. And you, then you've <laughs> got to just keep going for, and then then you'll get Western Michigan as like a reset after Alabama. And, so a bye, could, and, and a bye week after and that. And a bye week. So you yeah. could potentially, if you can win South Carolina, you can go four and two, yep. which just sets you up for success for the rest of the season. Uh, I would or like at least to, for a bowl eligibility. Factors. I'm going to clip this and send it to your friends that you said Mississippi State is going to win at South Carolina. I didn't 23rd. say that. I you said did. you did too. You said that you think I they're said they win. need to. No, you said well, you think they're going to win. I think I'm they saying. might. I'm sending. I think they might too. I'm just saying. Well, you, you hate South Carolina too. It's fine. It's okay. I get a pat. That's not true. You're just trying to bring me down with you, and I'm not going to stand for it. Just a bunch of cock commanders down there. Um, all right. All the, the old Mississippi Rebels. Who you got? Number one most important Your game. Your turn. All right, I, I said Egg Bowl. I said Egg Bowl. I, oh, I went you first. did go first. You go first this time. Okay. So, oh no, I lost it. Uh huh. Convenient. <laughs> <laughs> you know I really what? did. Ole Miss at Tulane is going to be such a fun game. Um, like, I mean, well, and Tulane is so much Gulf Coast already. Right preseason there. top 20. I mean, I could almost just go with that because preseason top 20, Tulane setting the tone for the year. I mean, I think that's going to be a really good game. We're going to get more out of that than we would normally get from an, a right, non conference quit, quit team. Did you find I your mean, notes? Should I just go with it? <laughs> no, I didn't. <laughs> Um, I wrote down, so my top three for Ole Miss, cause to your point, we don't know exactly what these teams are going to be, but I think Ole Miss is going to be pretty good. Um, I didn't have those same feelings last year, but I have those feelings this year, LSU at Auburn at Mississippi state. So the egg bowl has got to be on there at Auburn on October 21st, coming off of the bye week 
before the Vandy game and the A&M game at home could be a, a huge three-game stretch for them. But I wrote LSU at home is the is the biggest game because they're at home following the Bama game. So you lose to Bama. If you lose to LSU, you're 0-2 in the SEC. If you beat LSU at home, which uh, uh, you know is very possible, if you beat LSU at home, it completely changes the direction of your season on September 30th. That's week number five. So LSU on the road, one of their more difficult road trips of the season for a team that's preseason top 10, probably LSU. I, I like Ole Miss at home. Give me the Magnolia Bowl hosting the Tigers as the most important game for LSU or for Ole Miss. Sorry. I went I went Arkansas right after that. I think it's I think it's definitely winnable for Ole Miss. Yeah. Um those games have been like relatively close. Was it last year that that game was so crazy? It's been fun, yeah. Last couple um, of years. Ole Miss Arkansas. Um because if you can because you've already had LSU and Alabama right before it, that could put you at 4-0 and then you could easily go ahead and get to bowl eligibility in the next two weeks following that yep. with Auburn and Vanderbilt. And then if you can do that, maybe you have the momentum to take out A&M before you get to Georgia. So I thought that that game wedged right after LSU because if even if things go horribly awry with Alabama and LSU, you get back on track with Arkansas yep. and then maybe knock out the three in a row starting with Arkansas and then going Auburn Vanderbilt to reach bowl eligibility even with with three or four games left in the season that's a good one I like that Texas A&M um I I went with the very first SEC game for Hugh Freeze the very first SEC game for Bobby Petrino at at Texas A&M and the start of the entire run for Jimbo Fisher and Texas A&M Auburn at home Mm. week number four September 23 you beat Auburn at home you then have Arkansas, Alabama, Tennessee, South Carolina, Ole Miss. It is brutal for Texas A&M. Damn. If you lose to Auburn at home to start your conference record, it is not going to be pretty in College Station. It is critical that they win that game. Yeah. Uh, this is this one was tough for me. I went back and forth between – also, I didn't acknowledge you on that. Your reasoning is sound. It's okay. Thank you. It's fine. Um. I, I I teetered back and forth with Arkansas not only because of like that you know the stakes of that game comes with and that there's some culture around it now, um, but also for the same reason you were talking about Auburn of where it falls um, in the whole trajectory of their season. Um, I do. I ended up going with Tennessee, which felt random. I I, I love where you're going with this because it just. Texas A&M is teetering on like falling out of that top tier of the SEC that they sat in for several years. And Tennessee is teetering on being in it and staying in it. And I think because of how much we can learn about these two particular teams from that game and the fact that if Texas A&M can come out of the Alabama, what seems to be a, a probable loss to me out of the Alabama week and reset before Tennessee, then they're going to be in a better position and we'll learn a lot about both. I, I am giving it to, I would give it to Tennessee though. I don't know if Texas A&M will pull it off. It's in Knoxville. Um, so although I think Tennessee will win it, I, I think it's extremely important for the Aggies. I think it's almost more important for Tennessee, but I love the game having way more importance than anybody realizes. It's one of those mm-hmm. random crossovers that you're like, well, that's games happening now. Okay, fine. Like once every seven years. Um, right. I think my, I think the, I think actually the night, that that the uh, overtime game happened. Tennessee at A and M with Alvin Kamara, 
you know, whatever. And all that, that whole entire game, that was the night we went into the hospital after the game. And I may or may not have had to sober up to, to go to the hospital so that my wife could give birth to our first child. Really? The following day. Yeah. <laughs> Jeez, Brady. We had a big, we had a big old party. They had a big old party. She was fine. We had gone to the doctor the day before. There was no, like the doctor was like, yeah, you're weeks away. So we had a big old party. Uh, she went home early from the party because the game went into overtime. Uh, I proceeded to slow down and sober up and drink a lot of water. And then by about like, you know, kick off of the pack 12 games that night by about a 10, 11 o'clock at night, uh, we were heading to the hospital for sure. Walking around trying to, you know, <laughs> loosen some stuff up. <laughs> you that's cr- good for Haley. She's Texas a trooper. Texas A&M, Tennessee. Uh, I'm going to get to Texas A&M, Tennessee when we talk about the balls. Uh, Florida, uh, I, Tennessee at home. This is t- they got to go. Their schedule is so ridiculously difficult. They play every single good team. Uh, they play Florida State in the non-conference. They play Utah in the non-conference. This is a very difficult schedule. They're at South Carolina. They're at Kentucky. You got Georgia in the neutral field. Uh, they got to play at LSU. Like it is an absurdly difficult schedule. And one of the few chances to pull an upset over a rival at home is Tennessee in week three. And it will set the tone for the entire season for Florida. I also have that game. Um, it sticks out. You look at glance at their schedule and it's, it pops off pretty quick. Um, it's just not, they're not at the, they're not at the Georgia level anymore. I mean, that game used to be a lot more even than it is in right now. And a lot of, you know, that the answer to that many years prior to that to now would have been Georgia, Florida, but right now it's Florida, Tennessee. No question. In fact, I think Tennessee is the most important game for a lot of teams. So let's get to Georgia because I think the most important game is at Tennessee. Uh, November 18th at Tennessee. Now, look, they're going to play Ole Miss at home. <laughs> tricky game. Could be tricky. You got to go first on all the ones we agreed about. <laughs> That's good. That's good. I, pl- I planned that. Uh, Florida, it. of course, in Jacksonville. At Auburn early in the season could be tricky. September mm-hmm. 30th, the, the, the Deep South's oldest rivalry. I get that. But they are going to be a heavy favorite in every single game that they play. They get South Carolina at home. They get Kentucky at home. They get Missouri at home. Like they're not going to lose a game. <laughs> George right. is not again. And the only one could be November 18th. And Adam Sparks is about to talk about this, depending on who's playing quarterback for Tennessee at the time. Uh, that could be an extra, that could be by far clearly, easily, not even questionable, the most difficult game on the schedule for Georgia. And it's so it's this, it's different. Florida's got so many tough games that they need to win one. Georgia has so many easy games that this is the only one that stands out as very difficult. So that's why I made it Tennessee. Yeah, there's just a lot to lose. It's just a lot on the line for Georgia. And I think even if that's the only, you know, then they've got their rivalry, rivalry week. Rivalry week. Never, it never works out for me on that. Um, After that against, you know, against tech. And so like Tennessee, although I don't think, you know, I don't think anything's going to keep this team out of the playoffs. It could keep uh, talking about Georgia, Georgia, Georgia yeah, Georgia out of the playoffs. Then, but they're getting in no matter what. In my mind, I don't see a reason why they wouldn't. But just it's it's more about placement for them, and you know if they're heavily favored and everything, can they keep up with the standard that's being set for them preseason? And can they pull? Can they win every game? In the regular season, and if they don't, I think it will be that Tennessee it, game. It feels like you could just get, pick a pick a loss and give them a loss somewhere, a game they're not supposed to lose, which is extremely unlikely, and just give it to them. And mm-hmm. then that Tennessee game maybe becomes a division title game, but even then, even if they lose it, there's the odds of Tennessee being six and two in conference at that time and winning the, the game against Georgia seem very small. And right. so, 
you can almost just like it's almost like what they're going for is the three-peat and perfection, and that's the stakes, not like winning the division. Like they're gonna win the division. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's it's a perfection. It's like, can you go right. 12 and out? Right. Um, all right, Kentucky, you're gonna see a theme here. Tennessee. Um <laughs> go go ahead. No, I was no, you go first. Well, you already said it. I don't I don't have Tennessee as the most important. Uh, okay, one. I'll I'll real quickly here. October 28th. Halloween weekend coming off a of bye week. You're at home. This rivalry game for Stoops has been, he's gone poorly for him. Uh, they have lost to, to Jeremy Pruitt. They've lost to Butch Jones. They've lost to bad teams and they've lost to good Tennessee teams. Um, if Kentucky, they've got to play their schedule is really hard too. like at Georgia, Alabama, at South Carolina, at Louisville. They've got a tough schedule. I mean, it's backloaded AF very though. heavily. Yes. And it begins after the bye week with the Tennessee game. And if you win that Tennessee game, you feel a little bit better about where you're headed. And it, frankly, this could be a team fighting for bowl eligibility. And it's an older rivalry than people think. Uh, I will take Kentucky. That's three straight where the most important game is going to be Tennessee. This is what this is what's happened to you, Tennessee. You you are the hunted now, man. You're not Georgia, but your team, you're the most important game for a lot of teams, in my opinion. Who who, who you got? I went week, is this week five? One, two, three, four, five. I went week five, uh, Kentucky, Florida at Kentucky. That's so they're one. at home. Um, the reason being, and I obviously Tennessee pops off the page when you're staring at all these schedules, but if Kentucky can pull it off against Florida, they could be bowl eligible before Tennessee. And I think that this, that makes the stakes a little bit lower. Um, I'm not saying that knocking off Florida would be easy because I think that would be naive of me, but you you're starting with ball state, Eastern Kentucky, Akron and Vanderbilt. I mean, this could, this schedule could not be more like backloaded back heavy mm -hmm. if they tried. Um, then you have F Florida, which is the only one of those that I just named that even seems like a, a more even matchup. And then if you could pull that off, you've gone five and oh, you have Georgia the next week, and then you have Missouri after that. So if you could pull it off, you beat Missouri, then you're bowl eligible for Tennessee, meaning that the stakes are lower. And sometimes, sometimes that people take their foot off the gas a little bit, but oftentimes people have confidence and the pressure's off and they've got confidence that they can go forward. No, so I, I that like could go it. either way, but yeah, that's what I went with. Kentucky at South Carolina, second to last week of the year, the last SEC game of the season for both those teams, November 18th. That that could be incredibly important for both teams. Um, that that's another one. But I they're going to be I, tired. I, I had Florida. Point. I had Florida written down as as well. There's no question about that. Um, the Missouri Tigers, the most important game for the Missouri Tigers. What you got? Missouri Tigers, not organized today, y'all. <laughs> I think it's um, a two. I think it's a two game stretch. Actually, honestly. Uh, I went back and forth on this one too, and I don't think I ever put a definitive answer down. Can I mean I think I mean if they could pull off that Kansas State game on the sixteenth of September, that would set a pretty powerful tone. Yep. I mean Kansas That's State's gonna I be like that. I like very that. good. I think I'm gonna go with that because I think Missouri I think Missouri is still one of those teams that's kind of finding their footing and figuring out their their level of confidence and what mm -hmm. they're capable of. So I think the beginning of the season is pretty important for them. I, that's a non conference game over a good team. And if you win at home, you're you're three and oh, then you got Memphis the next week in St. Louis, you could go four and oh. Vanderbilt could be five and oh in theory. Uh, I went with the two-game stretch, which I know is kind of cheating, but at Kentucky on October 14th and then South Carolina at home the following week, they'll play okay. LSU in the middle there. But in between LSU and Georgia, 
They play Kentucky and South Carolina. And if Missouri is going to elevate itself to a seven or eight win team this year, take a step forward in the conference the way some people might believe about this team, you have to beat the teams that are on your level. Mm-hmm. And they've played wild, crazy, bonkers games against Kentucky, sort of like you know Arkansas, Ole Miss, or whatever, uh, and the on the other side, and South Carolina. Like you get Kentucky on the road, South Carolina at home. You those two games could decide between six and six or eight and four. Yeah, and that those are the two. And again, I know that's kind of cheating, so I'm sorry, but that's yeah, okay. You, that's I'm right. used to you cheating. That's fair. South Carolina, who you got? South Carolina, you go first on this one. I was ready for Tennessee. Kentucky at home. November 18th, I just mentioned it for Kentucky. Uh, th- this is the game that I think you, they're going to have Florida at home, which is a big game as well. Um, North Carolina in the non-con is fascinating. You know, Mississippi State's a big game. You're at Georgia, at Tennessee, at AM, Clemson, a lot of big name games on there. But Kentucky at home to wrap up SEC season, that could be a, hey, are we four and four in the SEC? It, I don't think it's for bowl eligibility, but it's possible I think that Kentucky-South Carolina game is going to define both of those programs at the end of the year. So November 18th, Kentucky at South Carolina. I'm going South Carolina or Mississippi State Ooh, okay. at I like it. home. Um, it's right after Georgia. Uh, that's – you kind of see what your depth looks like when you play a team that's as physical as Georgia. So you have a good read on what you're capable of and your stamina going into the rest of SEC play. Um, and, it, again, it's wedged in between two really tough ones, which is, you know, South Carolina – or it's them playing at Georgia and South Carolina playing at Tennessee. So that's that month is really tough for them. Um, Tennessee also is extremely important, but it's it's more far fetched for them to pull that off in my mind. I think. I think Tennessee is going to be out for blood in that game. I agree. So <laughs> I, I, I'm. I think you can't put too much of a stake on. You yeah. know, when you're playing at Neyland, if you for the people who have not been, it's just crazy. I. I talk about all the time. I attribute like partial partial deafness to Neyland Stadium, <laughs> but yeah, that game re- wedged right in between Georgia and Tennessee, which is Mississippi State, is what I went yeah. with. I like it. All right, now our alma maters. We finished it up. Uh, Tennessee. I've got two, and one of them includes your Texas A and M Aggies visiting Neyland Stadium. I think Texas A and M is going to win the game. I they their you line do. is they're they're going to have a better line of scrimmage. You got Bobby Petrino. You got the quarterback. No one's going to circle it. If you're a Tennessee fan, you're not going to circle it. You're going to think, oh, we got A&M at home. They're terrible last year. Texas A&M is going to be significantly better this year. Now, which game do I think is more important for the definition of the season? At Florida week three. I I could not decide between these two, but that, and, and of course, Georgia at home is a huge game as well. So if they're as good as last year, then Georgia's the biggest game. But I don't think they're going to be as good, which means the Florida road trip in week three and the AM game at home, that is the difference between 10 and two or eight and four. And, and I, those two games are the, are the biggest moments because you still have to play at Kentucky. You still got South Carolina at home, but it's at Florida. If you lose that game, you've lost all momentum from last season. Yeah. It's interesting that theirs is more like a, what bad things happen if you lose versus what good things happen if you win. Cause most of the other games that we picked, I'm like, this will be great for you to win because the rest of your season will shape up better. And for Tennessee, it's like, what's going to be the worst game for you to lose. And it's weird because when I'm, I'm finding myself like on paper, like I don't, you know, there's not that much of a, a 
difference to me between like the talent level or the ability to win between Kentucky and Tennessee. But when I'm looking at it, I'm like, I, I want to just instinctively give things to Tennessee that I probably shouldn't just be. Yeah, that's fair. Giving that's fair. them. Um, uh, State of the Union from Adam Sparks coming up in just a minute, by the way. Yep. So, I mean, God. There you go. This one's really hard. I, I, I really honestly didn't nail this one down. I mean, I just don't you think they Texas can pull off. So, yeah. Go, bo go both of them. Go A&M for, for both teams. I think it's a huge game for both teams. Yeah, that's it's what more I got it is, it is more important for Tennessee because there are higher expectations and they're at home. And they're coming mm -hmm. off a bye week. For that, for that matter. Right, and then you go into Alabama. Yeah, yeah. okay, and, I'm going A&M. And at Kentucky. All right, Vandy, uh, I went with... Do you want to go first? You go first. No. You go first. Uh, I went with the two-game stretch for, for Vandy as well. Uh, I, oh. Now, the Atwick Now Forest, I want to skip you. <laughs> the Atwick Forest game is pretty critical because that could define, like... Game like is always where, close. Where, ...where they are. Yeah, and it's always a good game. Kentucky and Missouri back-to-back -back at home, September 23rd and September 30th. Weeks four and five, back-to-back. -back. Those are the two probably most winnable SEC games of the year. You do have Ole Miss later. You got Florida. You got, you know, there's other games you could win in theory if you improve. But two games at home to start SEC play, Kentucky and Missouri, two teams that won't be picked in the top two in the East. Those are opportunities to, to pull up sets every Vanderbilt, in my opinion. I think Missouri is more important. That's what I went with is more important yep. than Kentucky because if you beat Kentucky and then you also beat Missouri, amazing. But if you lose to Kentucky and then you reset and you can beat Missouri, you're back on track. That's valid. Relatively speaking. Yep. So those two games pop out to because I think just anything in that next stint, Florida, Georgia, Ole Miss, Auburn, yeah, they're all going to be tough. We normally money, play yeah. South Carolina close. We used to play Ole Miss close all the time, and it's not been as much like that recently. So, yeah, I think it's that reset Missouri game. If you win Kentucky and Missouri, great. If you lose to Kentucky and still beat Missouri, it's, it says something that, you know, at least you can reset and get on the right path. Hey, nice big step forward, Clark Lee. Here's your, the final six games of your season. At Florida, Georgia, at Ole Miss, Auburn, at South Carolina, Shit. at Tennessee. Way to go, Clark. Way to go. The, SEC the, office, not doing it. The, they do get two bye weeks in there, which is nice. The South Carolina, Tennessee end of the season thing didn't used to be as intimidating as it sounds now. <laughs> That's true. Used to win a couple of those games uh, yeah. against Tennessee. Uh, all right. So speaking of the volunteers, uh, when we come back, our State of the Union with Knoxville New Sentinels, Adam Sparks. Adam, good to see you, man. How are you, sir? Welcome to the show. Good to be back on. Uh, spring already. It's, I mean, it's not spring weather outside, but it's spring enough for football, I suppose. Well, on uh, on Monday this week, it was 78 in Nashville, and today it's like 68 or 70 degrees. Sunshine, the flowers are starting to bloom. It feels pretty springy here in Nashville. So we're going to check in with Knoxville, and we're going to get we're going to do a state of the union here today. And I just wanted to start with, like, I want to do a hypothetical right out of the gate, just to like blow like for people's brains to explode right away. Um, what does this Tennessee fan base do? If they're a pretty good football team in 2023, Joe Milton's a pretty good quarterback. He has his best season, but they finish eight and four. And then they win a bowl game, maybe even they go nine and four. What does the fan base do? Uh, it probably almost completely depends on uh, how Nico is, how you feel about Nico at the end of the year. That That's it. Because if, if this team is eight and four under Joe Milton – 
Um, and Nico's not necessarily the guy. It's like, well, that's this is hit hit the peak under Hendon Hooker, and now it's just going to crumble and go back down to you know six seven wins. But if Nico looks the part, then it's just oh, this is just a you know a small small dip, and uh, and you know and and Nico's going to lead this team to the playoffs. Um, so it really it really depends on on that. I mean, so much right. of college football is determined about quarterback. Look, I mean, you know, look at Texas right now. Um, it's it's what do, what do you have in the tank at quarterback? And uh, that I mean, so much of the narrative over this season is going to be Nico and Joe Milton. I'm curious to see in the spring how people react to this too, because it's. I mean, we're going to be cover. I'm, I'm going to watch Nico every single day at practice. That's, that's <laughs> I, the backup quarterback, but that's that's the beat that I'm going to be on, and that's what people are going to be. Interested, oh, and his clock is going to be sped up in fans' eyes uh, by several months. the The best thing that happened to to I think this team in terms of the fan base um, is Joe Milton playing pretty well in the Orange Bowl because um, it will calm some of the Nico talk down a little bit, but it'll get ramped up as as soon as we get into spring practice again. So I'm, I I do think that again, while I have been long critical of Joe Milton as a star quarterback. You also cannot say that Hendon Hooker was the most efficient quarterback in Tennessee history and a Heisman finalist, and then just say, oh, without him, you're going to be totally fine. You, you can't do that either. I do think it's fair with two years in the system, learning behind Hendon Hooker, a lot of experience. I don't think you can expect Orange Bowl Joe Milton, but I think you can expect maybe his, again, I think what could be his best season. I don't think that's good enough to replicate 10-2 and two and what they did last year. So I do think there's a slight step back. Are you suggesting that this is going to be sort of Jalen Hurts to a Tungo Vailoa where he's going to get like they're they're blowing somebody out and they're going to go early to Nico to make sure that he gets a lot of reps as a freshman? Is that is that the kind of vibe you're getting? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think a lot of it is determined on. I mean, if, if you look at the schedule, uh, Tennessee plays Virginia in Nashville. Joe Milton should be pretty good, and they'll beat a bad Virginia team, and so all will be well. They'll blow out Austin P. And by the way, Nico will play a lot in that game. Uh, now, if he plays well against Austin P., hold on, you know. <laughs> but uh, but you know, then you go to the swamp, and so that first three games you have to determine by then is this Joe Milton's team the rest of the way, especially if he beats Florida, or is this you know turn the car over to Nico and you, you, I don't think you you want to turn the car over to Nico at the swap, you know. So, so you got to kind of make the decision somewhere in there. I, th I mean, I think a lot of it is going to determine on what the record is. Uh, if this is a team that can win nine or ten games, regardless of how Joe Milton is playing, you probably stay with Joe. But if this looks like this is a seven win team, then you hand it over to Nico and and see what happens. Uh, I do think the Orange Bowl changed a lot of things in that this doesn't seem like a legitimate competition. They may sell it that way a little bit, but this is Joe Milton's job to lose. I don't even think they have to announce him as the starter or the front runner. It's his job, and Nico is there to learn. And by the way, they only have two scholarship quarterbacks. So, you know, Nico's not going to be fighting for reps. He's going to get all that he needs in, in spring. Yeah, I've always assumed Joe Milton will be the starter and that Nico takes over in, in 24. Uh, there's another one also that just popped into my the, the Kelly Bryant, Trevor Lawrence situation uh, popped into my head as well, which is, again, even a little bit different than Tua. They 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 fully rested Tua because Jalen Hurts was good enough to lead them 
you know, to the SEC championship. Uh, Kelly Bryant wasn't good enough because Trevor Lawrence was that good. I also think Trevor Lawrence is probably more physically developed as a true freshman than maybe Nico is. I think he needs a few more pork chops, but uh, it'll be fascinating to watch. So it, you, you alluded to like how good the team is. And my first question, I'm not worried about the receiving core or the skill players, but my first question is the defense. Um, we, we saw what happened at the end of the year. Uh, we know the metrics. We know what they are. Middle of the pack to bottom half of the of the SEC. Um, they're losing a couple of key pieces. What do you make of the depth? Are all the young players ready? Or, or is this still a work in progress in your mind on that side of the ball? Well, I mean, it depends on where you're looking at. Uh, I think linebacker is going to be fine. They bring in a BYU transfer who's, you know, like 25 years old. Uh, they'll plug him in. They'll, they'll be fine there. Uh, the secondary is is not going to be good. I mean, it couldn't be much worse than it was in terms of pass defense from last year. All the same guys are back. I mean, Warren Burrell is back. Uh, they're going to plug in uh, Gabe Judy Lolly. Um People will know him from Vanderbilt a couple years ago. He was at BYU last year. So they're just going to add more bodies to the secondary and see how that goes. Um, one one difference, one small difference, but I think important, is that last year virtually every cornerback was out during spring practice. They were all injured, and now almost all of them are going to be here on the field. And so we're, we're going to actually see – uh, the competition, we're going to be able to see who they're moving to safety and nickel and elsewhere because that didn't happen last year uh, until fall camp. So I, I think I think the coaches are going to feel better about the secondary maybe than the fan base, or maybe I will by the end of spring because they'll make be able to make more decisions. I mean, I, I, you know, Tennessee has won and Josh Hopple has won with a bad pass defense and a bad secondary. He did it at UCF. He's done it here. So it's kind of one of those things when people complain about how bad the secondary is. They say, well, you, you went 11 and two. The secondary is bad. Can you just do that again if the offense is really good? Um, I think the more pressing issue is the pass rush, and 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 I don't I don't know if they. I mean, do they have a Byron Young? I I don't think so. Um, could they in a couple of years? Maybe. Um, you know, so much of spring now is we like to look at the at the at the newcomers, obviously, but the freshmen, everybody gets so excited about the, the midterm Sundays and which freshmen are going to pop and they almost never pop and they almost never play. <laughs> it's you're looking at, you know, you're looking at the previous year, two years. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And the previous year, a year ago, everybody was excited for Joshua Josephs, James Pierce, Tyree West. Those were their three defensive linemen. Uh, two edge rushers, and then one guy that's sort of a hybrid strong, strong side uh, defensive end. Those three guys played some last year, and now this is their second year. Those are the three guys that you have to look at to take the next step to be starters or to be impact guys. And uh, Tennessee was pretty good last year on the defensive line about rotating a lot of guys. So all three of them will be in there. That's what more I'm looking at on defense are their dynamic pass rushers. Because uh, the secondary – was not good last year. Probably won't be great this year, but it, it is what it right. is. Does the defensive line or the quarterback take them from eight and four to ten and two? Like, what 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 is more impactful on the? I mean, obviously, we, we know quarterback's the most impactful position on the field. I'm just saying, you know, you what you're going to kind of get out of Joe Milton. Is it the defensive line that makes the difference, or is it just extra extra awesome Joe Milton? Yeah, I mean, I, part of that, part of the question within the question there is where is Joe Milton's ceiling? Um, you know, I I tend to think his ceiling is higher now than I did a year ago, but I still don't think it's Hendon Hooker high. Um, 
you know, I, I mean, I did a I did a look through a couple weeks ago where I looked at all 191 plays that Joe Milton played last year because uh, he his his stats were through the roof, ten touchdowns, no interceptions. I mean his his passing efficiency was better than Hendon Hooker's. So I went back and looked at those and thought, well, they're all against you know Ball State's third stringers, so who cares? But when I went back and looked at it, the majority of his snaps, like 60, 70 percent, were against starters on SEC teams or Clemson. Um, when I looked at his so-called bad passes, passes he shouldn't have thrown into that, could have been picked up, I counted like eight or nine bad passes in the whole year. I mean, Joe Milton was really good last year. And when I looked back at it more and more, I, I saw that he was he was much better than I thought, and his numbers were, were great. So the ceiling may be higher on Joe Milton than, than certainly you thought, maybe you still think, <laughs> uh, certainly what I thought. Um, I mean – if they can if they can figure out the right receiving core and they can protect him, this team could put up as many points as they did last year. And if you know if the defense is bad, the defense is bad. I don't think Josh Hopple really he can say what he wants. I don't think he really goes into seasons thinking, man, this defense has got to be really good or I can't win games. <laughs> I think he thinks if I can score fifty, I'll beat anybody. Yeah, and I think that's the the key is if Joe like and again I took my my six year old uh, forced me shamed me into taking her to the to the Tennessee Vandy game because you said a lot of those passes were against Clemson or an SEC team I'm assuming that's Vanderbilt and then yeah. Clemson in a bowl game which how how much does that count he still missed a ton of wide open receivers uh, in, in against Vanderbilt and it's because he's too strong it's not because he's a bad quarterback or he's and we all know how good of a dude he is he's a great guy so it's like we're all rooting for him. But just take a little bit off, man. Just take a little bit off. And again, I think he will have his best season. I think he I'm not worried about the receivers. I think he's going to do a solid job. I just think I think expectation, reasonable expectations for Joe Milton. I feel like Tennessee fans are expecting Hendon Hooker, and I don't think that's fair. But he he, again, back to some of the research. People have to look at this on KnoxNews.com to look back at it. But yeah, there you go. He he. He did miss throws. Uh, we think of him as a guy that overthrows all deep passes because they've come in chunks. Uh, they came against Bowling Green in his first ever start, right? There were like six of them. And against, <laughs> and against Vanderbilt, there were like five of them. And those two games made up for like 90% of his overthrows on anything beyond like 20 yards. And you say, well, that's that's two pretty big ones, right? There's two starts. So but, his last two regular season starts. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Okay. So I mean, I mean, part of the, I mean, part of the conversation with him some is, uh, is he a better, uh, is he a better filling guy or relief pitcher than he is a starter? Um, you know, when the pressure is on him and he's starting, he can get amped up and he can overthrow guys. He was phenomenal throwing uh, deep balls in in the Clemson game. Yeah, he was really good when he came into to other games late. Now you can say, well, you know, that was against Ball State or UT Martin or whatever. Uh, but there was a receiver there, and there was a defender there, and they were defended closely. And he made the throw for sixty yards when he was supposed to throw at sixty yards. So, yep. Um, we we judge him being terrible on deep balls. Uh, because we saw them one after the other after the other. And, yeah. and there's sort of this compounded memory that he's been terrible at that. It is his biggest weakness. I I, I don't think it's as bad, though, as, as we, we no, know. I know. And, and again, some of those post routes against Clemson were phenomenal. They also didn't have two first round draft picks on the defensive line. Tennessee didn't have all their players either. So it's kind of fair, fair there. Um, again, I do think he's going to have his best season. I, 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 you know, the eight yard dig route, 
does he need to throw it 108 miles an hour? You know, uh, probably not. Um, but again, I think to your point earlier, uh, if they're eight and four, but Nico has shown flashes and Milton's been solid and Nico has shown flashes and he's clearly the future, but he's not good enough to take over, which is, I think what's going to happen. I, I think Tennessee fans might be a little bummed out by that, but I still think that's a testament to them being able to rebuild quickly. They're going to lose two NFL receivers. They're going to lose a potential first round draft pick and Darnell Darnell Wright is flying up draft boards. Um, and, and of course they lose their offensive coordinator and their high, you know, the Heisman caliber quarterback. I just think, I think we're replace, they're replacing more than you think, and they're still going to be pretty good. And I think that's a credit to Josh Heupel. Well, a couple things on that. Number one, if they are eight and four, who are the four losses to? Are they to Florida, Georgia, and Alabama? Because if they are, people will say that's a step back and there yeah. needs to be repairs and a fix and all that. Um, you know, I think last year, and I've asked a lot of fans this, you know, that were really bummed out about the South Carolina loss. Say, yeah, but would you trade it for Alabama? They said, no, 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 no. Yeah, no. yeah. Yeah. So it's kind of who you beat because right. South Carolina was a letdown, but the, the thinking is still the Tennessee team that beat Alabama and that beat Florida. That's an LSU. That's the real Tennessee team. South Carolina was, was well, the outlier. Here's, here's one. They're going to lose to A&M because A&M is going to be so much better than anyone expects because all those players from like two classes ago are now going to be superstars. Like you're talking about, they're going to lose to like Kentucky and Florida and Alabama. And then they're going to beat Georgia. <laughs> beat Georgia would make would make the year eight and four you know but, but, but the other good. thing on that when you talk about like what where could they be in replacing guys yeah I think that's the big theme of spring right now because if you look at what they picked up in the portal I think they got eight guys there's a number of those that are sort of one-to-one replacements that could that could be tough I mean John Campbell uh left tackle from Miami he's the new Darnell Wright uh, McCallan Castles from UC Davis, he's the new Princeton fan. Dante Thornton from Oregon is the new Jalen Hyatt or Cedric Tillman. It depends on where they put him. Uh, Keenan Peely is the new Jeremy Banks. So are, are you going to be able to hit on all those? Because right. if you hit on all those, you'll be as good as last year. If you hit on half of them, you're going to take a little bit of step back. And so yeah. I think it's going to be easier this spring to just see, hey, is that new guy – as good as what the old guy was. And I think that's an interesting thing with the portal now. How, how much credit with Hendon Hooker's development, the offensive success, does Alex Golish get? Uh, I mean, a pretty good a pretty good amount. Um, I'm glad for Golish that he got a head coaching job because that was the time to strike uh, to get that job because uh, I, think, I think he's a really good offensive mind. I think he added a lot to what Josh Heupel had, but this is Josh Heupel's offense. That's Josh Heupel's quarterback. Um, you know, I think Josh Heupel, um, he seems extremely humble, but there's an ego in there. And I think he thinks he can plug and play with different coaches. And that's why, I mean, that's why he elevated yeah. Joey Halsley to, right. to, to OC. Um, so it, it helped there. I mean, there was a, there was a tremendous relationship, sort of a triad there of, Joey Halsley, Alex Golish, and Josh Heupel, and they were all on the same page, and Hendon Hooker could kind of go to different ones for different things, and so they've got to uphold that now because now it's just two guys, Halsley in two positions and Heupel, and that'll be interesting to see if they can lend the same support to Joe Milton, and by the way, Joe Milton kind of has two responsibilities now. He's the starting quarterback. He's the new Hendon Hooker. He's he, he'll try to mimic him in some ways, but then he's also has the responsibility of being to Nico what Hendon Hooker was yeah. to Joe Milton, because 
even though Hidden Hooker and Joe Milton were both older guys and had been around, if you talk to, to those two guys, Hidden Hooker was a 40-year-old man and Joe Milton was still a 19-year-old. <laughs> I mean, if you go to practice that Hidden Hooker was over talking to the, you know, the coaches with gray hair and Joe Milton was dancing with the freshmen. And that's just the two different dynamics that you have with those guys. And both yeah. of those are phenomenal and both of those can work. But, you know, it's a, it's it's just sort of a different thing. And I'll be interested to see the body language of Joe Milton and how he reacts to Nico. Because all that he has told us is that that's my little brother. I'm going to bring him along. But he's probably going to bring him along a little differently than Hinton Hooker yeah. brought him along. Can, can you put into perspective, you've covered three different teams in the state. Can you put into perspective anybody that comes close to Hendon Hooker, like holistically, as as a as a talent on the field, off the field, a personality, the leadership, the maturity. Is there anybody that you that you think of that that you put in that category? Um, boy, that's a tough one. Um, Oren Burks, linebacker yeah. at Vanderbilt. Yeah. Um, you know when all the uh, Neil for the anthem stuff was happening. Um, went to Oren Burks and had like a you know like an hour long conversation about it. And he didn't really want to talk about football. And he had some really nuanced thoughts about it. I remember riding around him with, uh, in, his, in his car one time. It's a long story. But talking about civil rights history and then talking about academics. And this is a guy who, you know, was a high-end draft pick uh, for the Packers at that time. Um, Hidden Hooker is kind of that. Hidden Hooker is uh, uh, – he does sort of the circuit now where he goes and speaks to like church groups and uh, I, th I think some kids and schools. Um, and then he also does commercials and he pops up everywhere and seems to blend in fine with like the, the 12 year old girl that can't believe I'm sitting here talking to Hen and Hooker. And then also the, uh, you know, the 70 year old man who just wants to talk about other things. And, what a, what a jerk. What a jerk. That's right. <laughs> Oren Burke says, you know, a little. there's a little bit of uh, covered Kevin Byard, too, when he was at yeah, uh, I was gonna Tennessee. Say. There's a little bit of Kevin Byard there, too. There's the guy that, um, you know, if the if the head coach had to, you know, had the flu and had to step away and he needed a substitute teacher, I got to pick a player coach for the week. Kevin Byard, Oren Burks, Hendon Hooker. There you go. They're the ones that would step into that role and would keep everybody on task. That is a damn good trio in the state of Tennessee. That is for sure, man. You've had some good some good dudes to cover, man. Uh, always a pleasure, my man. Uh, Adam, of course, you can catch him uh, all over the internet. Uh, I, 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 we kept you way too long, so we do appreciate you. Thank you so much, and uh, enjoy spring ball, buddy. Yep, good to be on. Thanks. 100,000 views for Nico. 100,000 views. <laughs> all we can get. <laughs> That was Adam Sparks. Everybody follow his work, man. He's awesome. Uh, literally married into a season ticket holder family uh, up there in Knoxville and has to deal with it like when he comes home from work. <laughs> it's weird <laughs> so to hear fun. Adam in conjunction with Knoxville still. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're not used to it yet, are you? I'm you, not. You hung out I with said... him in, the, in the, the Hawkins Field press box too many times. Mm -hmm. um, all right. Well, uh, that just about does it. Um, I think we'll give some hats away next week. We took a break from that. Uh, thanks to Adam Sparks for hanging out with us. Georgia, Kirby. Just put your foot down, man. You can still win championships. Put your foot down. Um, and I hopefully you guys enjoyed the uh, the most important games of the 2023 season in March. <laughs> for, Aaron, for Aaron Dugan, my name is Braden Gall. Everybody out there, have a great weekend. We'll talk to you next week. This has been Fringe Element here on the 440 Sports Network.
Yeah, Athens needs to be in timeout. <laughs>